welcome to my world. I'm your host, Kevin Rutherford. It is Friday, February 9th. We are here live. It is time for a Friday free-for-all. Also, trucking technology and efficiency. I should be joined at some point here by Joel, Alec, and Henry. We'll find out what's on their mind this week. I've got a couple things I'll talk about, but uh, it's really up to you what you want to talk about today. So pick up the phone and join us, 855-950-3835. Those phone lines are open right now. You can also hit the dial now button on your app, and that will get you in here as well. Uh, looks like uh, looks like we've got some calls coming in. I think Joel's here already. We'll get to that in just a second. Um, I left my notes in the other room. I just realized I was making notes this morning in the other room, and I forgot them. Now I have to try to remember what my notes were about. I had some good stuff on there, too. Um, darn, I might have to get somebody else in here and get talking so I can go grab my notes. Let me bring Joel in. We'll have something to talk about. Joel, good morning. I can hear you. Oh, all right. We have a save. <laughs> I wasn't sure if we were going to be able to do a show or as if I was going to get a Friday off. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> we're here. Um, I forgot my notes in the other room, so what do you want to talk about? Oh, anything. I, let's talk about trucks, right? Oh, yeah. This is a trucking show, isn't it? <laughs> it might be a good idea. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You uh, know, I, I we talk about this all the time, but you, you post a lot of your trips and runs and numbers. You put all kinds of details in there, and it never fails. Mm-hmm. There's always that one comment. And there was another one today I saw. Well, if you had to go up and down I-5 at 59 miles an hour, you'd have no opportunity to get better fuel economy. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute. Why not? Love it. <laughs> well, here here's the thing. I've I've been up and down all those roads. I know. And the slower that you go, the better it's... your fuel efficiency is re- regardless of the terrain. It and it's just it's amazing to me. So I did come up with this little disclaimer that I think I'm going to attach to every post that you know read something like while this information is true and accurate this post will upset and anger many people <laughs> and I just I, I don't I don't get man people get upset over this stuff and it just it's a little crazy it, it really is it's to the degree that they they get on there and they'll tell you 50 reasons why you can't do what I'm obviously doing and why it won't work. And it obviously is. I just I don't understand it, but I don't know. I, I have a, I actually have a pretty good time with it. it it's kind of fun in a way. It, it is. With these people. It, it is. You know, when, uh, when those motivational posters were, were big, I don't see them as much as I used to, but, uh, you know, they'd have a cool picture on there and then some sort of a saying or a quote. The, one of my favorites was, and it would usually show somebody in some crazy situation, like they're ready to jump off of a mountain with a bed sheet or something. But um, the phrase was, those who say it can't be done are usually interrupted by those doing it. Uh, yeah, pretty much, that's true. And, you know, one of the things that I just kind of would, would, would like to float out there, uh, because I, I did have a guy over on X hit one of my posts, and he said, so you're not trying to convince the world that they have to run 55 and buy a Volvo? Absolutely not. No, of course I am not. not in favor of of speed limits of any kind, really. 
um, especially a, a government enforced speed limit. Now, right. obviously, we, we have a speed range that we can run in, uh, but I am not trying to convince anybody or telling anybody that they need to run 55 mile an hour. It yeah. makes sense in my application, and I'm simply showing what happens when you do. Maybe you have a dedicated run and you have to run 70 mile an hour to do it. That's fine. I've got no problem with that. Um, but it, it, people take it the wrong way, and, and it's just, oh, you're telling us we all have to run 55. I am not saying that. Never never have said that. Um, you know, it, it's you really know, it's the just, opposite, it, it especially <laughs> the last couple of years, you and Henry have done an awesome job of showing how you can run at different speed ranges and still be efficient but we always try to get the point across yes you can spec a truck today to be more efficient at 70 miles an hour than trucks have ever been before but trucks will still be more efficient at 60 miles an hour or 55 but but the the difference now is we're we're giving people lots of flexibility. I talked about this yesterday. We talk about it all the time. You're now specking a, a drive line that can run at highway speeds in three gears. That's pretty incredible. That gives you a very wide range of speed, still being as efficient as you can be at those speeds. Correct, and and you are you are absolutely right. You know, a few years back, Henry kicked off his his seventy ten project, and rightfully so, rates were high, fuel was was relatively cheap, and it made sense to run faster based on the economics, not how he felt or, or <laughs> how he feels about speed or freedom or any of this nonsense. He looked at the economics of the situation and said, "Look." For my duty cycle, this makes sense. Uh, there for a while, I was running faster. Rates were high. I was doing multiple stops. Made sense to run a little bit faster than what I prefer to run. I just look at the economics of it. Right now, everybody knows rates are pretty much in the toilet. Fuel is relatively high. Uh, when I sit down in my operation and look at the economics, uh, trying to run between 55 and 62 mile an hour the majority of the time makes business sense. Really does. I'm not advocating for national speed limits. I'm not telling people oh. how to feel about driving, what their emotional connection to the speed is, but uh, just doing, putting out information, what I know to be true and accurate. Well, you know, for me, it's almost the opposite. I'm not pushing for speed limiters or different speed limits or, you know, the fact that they let trucks go 80 miles an hour out west now. I'm all for it. You guys want to go 80 miles an hour? Knock yourself out. I don't care. I, I, I agree. I see, I see my ability to manage time and speed as my competitive advantage. I right. don't let my emotions kind of the tamper with the business end of things. I'm looking at it purely from an economic perspective. And look, if you are emotionally attached to 70 mile an hour, or 75 or 80, that's your, your choice to run it, your freedom to do it. Go ahead and do it. I am not telling you not to do that. I'm at, in fact, I almost encourage you to go ahead and do that <laughs> um, because I feel like it gives me that competitive advantage in the marketplace. That's right. Uh, so, yeah, freedom to, freedom to choose, do what you want. I'm just putting out information. Um, I, I'm sorry that it upsets people. I'm sorry that people get mad about it. Um, 
but uh, it's it's just information at the end of the day. That's all it is. And you can read that information and then do what you want with it. And if if you don't like seeing it, just block me. Exactly. That's, that's the best thing to do. You know, just just get me the hell out of your feed. So I don't. That's you know, if if I'm really upsetting you to that degree, that would probably be the best the best. Uh, course of action because really at the end of the day it's just information that's, that's all it. it is yep um, hey Alec good morning good morning hey you know I appreciate everybody that does want to go faster yeah yeah you know, that's, fuel, that's true bring fuel surcharge up so uh, <laughs> as Joel was saying you know uh, hey have at it um, you know it's a competitive advantage that uh, the trucks that can run slow that do proper scheduling, dispatching, managing time, coordinating your hours of service, you know, all of that is inerts to a competitive advantage. So please drive yeah. fast. I, I, I agree. In fact, all those 80 mile an hour trucks, I appreciate them bringing me my Amazon stuff so fast. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> How do you think you get it next day? <laughs> That's right. Somebody's got to do it. I'm just not going to operate a truck like that. Hey, here's another one. So, right. you know, I, I've talked with you guys about my version of a fuel bonus program. The the most fuel bonus pro, you don't even hear mm-hmm. much about them anymore. Um, they were such horrible failures. I think a lot of fleets just gave up on them. And, uh, you know, I've talked about it. We've talked mm-hmm. about it. You're putting your two biggest costs at conflict with each other constantly. You pay your drivers by the mile. And the only way to really get better fuel economy or one of the most effective ways at a fleet level is just slow down. But you can't. Drivers don't want to be slowed down when you're paying them by the mile. And then... The idea that you have to wait till the end of the quarter. I've actually seen some fuel bonus programs that only pay out once a year. Uh, that is just awful. Human mm-hmm. nature. Nobody yeah. is changing their behavior in yeah. the moment for a possible reward three months right. from now. It just doesn't work that way. So yeah. fuel bonus programs have been a horrible failure. Yeah. This would all work better if we were paying drivers at least some of their time by the hour. But So I came up with the idea of first off here's another reason why those bonus programs aren't even fair we make a big deal about the fact that the driver still is 30 or 35 i've even seen 40 percent once in a while as far as their influence on fuel economy but the unspoken part of that is okay if it's 30 percent that means 70 percent of the factors aren't in the driver's control And yet we put them in a program where we say, well, if things work out right, you might get a bonus, but 70% of this you have no control over. That's just a, you know, the charger cooler starts leaking. Nobody's going (laughs) to fix it. Nobody even knows about it. And the driver loses his bonus, even though he slowed down to try to do better and it's not working. So I... I came up with the idea of you guarantee the driver that he's going to get his bonus, but in order to get it, he has to agree to re-govern the truck at a slower speed. And you give him the options and the formula. And I've done this with small fleets. I did it with my own drivers. It works. So I'm actually working with a small fleet right now in my coaching program that they're struggling. They are in a market where drivers are almost impossible to find. 
This is a company, a family-run company that's been in business for decades, had a lot of trucks at one point, and they're down to not many trucks anymore, and they're struggling. And it, it's a driver issue more than anything mm-hmm. else. So I said, hey, mm-hmm. look, we've got to work on your fuel mileage. It's something they've never really paid attention to. They're more of a local operation. There's still a huge opportunity in here for fuel savings, and we got to start focusing on that. So I set them up with this program, and I, I created a spreadsheet. Their, their trucks are currently governed at 70 and they didn't want to go down to one mile an hour increments. They said, we will give our drivers the option. Instead of 70, they can choose 65, 60, or 55 even. And at 55, they would get a 10 cent per mile raise because it saves this this company about 12 cents a mile to run 55 instead of 70. Mm -hmm. And they're local, so a lot of times Mm -hmm. this would not be that big of a deal anyway. So so I posted the spreadsheet showing that slowing that truck down saves the fleet 12 cents a mile. We're going to give 10 cents of it to the driver guaranteed whether we get better fuel economy or not. That's our risk. The driver is going to get his bonus. Do you mm-hmm. want to know what the fir- one of the first comments was? <laughs> Let's have it. <laughs> the comment was, I'm, I'm sure oh. something stupid, but go ahead. Yeah. The comment was, oh, you're keeping 25% of the savings. That sounds like wage theft. Oh my gosh! Wow! Yeah! Wow! 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 Uh, uh, to your point on this, this whole concept here, this is exactly what we done about a decade ago. We played with fuel mileage bonuses. We structured them every which way possible. They're just plain and simply not fair for all of the reasons you described. Um, we slowed the trucks down, gave drivers raises based on speed uh, that you were governed at. Uh, exactly what you've done here, and it, it is effective. Uh, something new that's going to be available on on the newer Volvos coming out. So, when you look at an iTorque truck with the three gears available at highway speed, you have three different driver selectable operating modes. So you have performance, basic, and economy. And um, the new trucks are going to actually track the number of miles that you run in each mode. And that's going to be the new bonus, I think, that my brother's going to put in place. You're going to, you're going to make X amount for every mile that you run in economy, uh, a little bit less when you're running in basic and a little bit less when you're running in performance. So you'll have your base, your base pay, and then you'll get so many cents per mile depending on which operating mode the truck was in. You know what? It's a very similar concept. Yeah, very similar, but very much improved, in my opinion. Let's think about it. This fleet where we're going to say, look, in order for that driver to get that 10 cents, it's got to govern his truck at 55. Now, we lose some flexibility there for both the driver and the fleet. You know, in those situations where you You need to run faster, um, you're kind of screwed. I I get that. Um, This now, though, technology gives us a better way. Yes, this is the issue that we had run into. For example, we had had a, a great driver who, you know, wanted the, the slower truck because he wanted the pay increase. 
there were multiple times where he was running close on hours and wanted to get home for the weekend and would just say, you know, look, I don't care about the pay at this point. I just want to get home. I wish I had the flexibility to do that. With this system in place, all he's got to do is hit a button. It goes into performance mode. His pay automatically adjusts. He can run 75 mile an hour. That's pretty awesome. Uh, not a problem. So the driver's in. The driver is in complete control of their pay. Yeah. If they want to go faster for some reason, look, I, I'm going to trust my driver to make the judgment that works for them. Use any one of these three modes. We encourage you to use them. And supposedly, this is even going to be able to display that on the dash, how many miles they've run in each different mode. Um throughout the week very cool. so uh it's going to be interesting when it gets here and i think you're right it also gives dispatch some flexibility because they can ask the driver i've got this load or i've got this load but to make this one you know you'd have to run in performance mode if you want to do that so yeah um, yeah it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out for sure i like that hey henry so, good morning hey good morning joel this is henry on that do they have any mode in that to if dispatch was the one that needed them to speed up to make a delivery that they wanted to get done. I, I don't sense. think di di dispatch will not have any direct control over the modes in the truck. That is going to be completely driver controlled. Um, and if the driver wants to do something that's, you know, a little more challenging and, you know, wants to take something that's a little further out and needs to speed, the driver will be in complete control of that. The, uh, I think Henry's question, though, is... They had a bonus program, and different times drivers were put in a quandary of, do I get the bonus or do I make the delivery for them? Right. So there's no bonus here. You just know exactly what you're going to get paid per mile in each mode, and the driver can just simply work it out. Does this make sense for me to do financially? There's no guessing on whether you're going to make a bonus, but there's no fuel mileage involved. It's just simply... You're okay. Let's just say you make seventy cents a mile in economy, sixty-five cents a mile in in basic, and fifty-five cents a mile in performance mode. Yeah. Then the driver just figures it out. The dispatch, you know, works with the driver, and if the driver says, "Look, I can run enough miles to me that's going to offset the difference. I want to run this," you know, whatever the reasoning that the driver may have, um, uh, you know, that's that's the way that it'll work out. I know a lot of guys come. Thursday night, Friday, they want to run a little faster because they would rather be home than make the extra few cents a mile. Um, they want to make as much money throughout the week as they can, but when it comes to Thursday, they want to get home. And, and that yep. makes sense to me. And yeah. It would be great to have that yeah. flexibility to say, all right, I'm going to run an economy till Thursday. And Friday, I'm going to put it in performance mode because I'm getting my ass home. I don't care what it costs. I'm getting home. Yeah, I like you that. Know? And, and to me, that makes sense. Yeah, me too. All right, so while you guys were talking, I ran and got my notes. So here I've got three topics I'm going to throw out. Uh, nothing major. You know, this one has nothing to do with trucking, but I found it pretty interesting because it's similar to what we're doing right now. I talked about this the other day. Um, I have a meeting this afternoon. I'm hoping we're going to start doing some beta testing of our own broadcast app. Um, if not today, hopefully by Monday. And one of the major changes we're, we've made in that app is even though we are a call-in radio show, our app is, our, our show is not going to have any phone lines. 
There, it technically, now we're, we are trying to figure out for a limited time how we can connect a phone number for people who just absolutely have to have a phone number. But most of the people listening to us listen on our app. And we now have the ability to connect the caller to us without a phone line at all. It's just all internet protocol is, is what it is. Better audio quality, um, depending on the caller's internet connection it, it is a better more stable connection sometimes than the phone line but i i just saw something interesting um x is you know we have spaces which is a big audio kind of conference call spaces are going to be getting video now soon um and elon posted today uh, that he is getting rid of his phone number and he is going to do all of his communication through X. No phone number anymore. No phone account. Mm. He'll have a, a phone, but he won't mm-hmm. have a, a phone calling plan at all. He will have a phone that won't be able to make a phone call because it won't even have a phone number or an account. But he can still communicate with anybody mm-hmm. that's on X. Obviously, that's the one drawback. If you're going to do this, you can only talk to people that are on X. But he's really pushing towards that almost replacing phones, that this becomes the way to communicate. And phone lines themselves and cell phones even may, the, the account itself may disappear. That phone does not need a phone line to communicate mm-hmm. with somebody else. So that's, uh, mm-hmm. that's kind of interesting to see that. Um, Here's something else I want to throw out. I wonder if Alexander, oh, go ahead. I wonder if Alexander Graham Bell could have ever imagined it. Yeah. It, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Really? Kind of crazy. Um, <laughs> hey, Kevin, see, well, how, how that, that one store supplier, how did that work out for the for AT&T before we had the baby bills? Yeah, That's well, my only concern, well, having one player with so much power. Yeah, but we really don't, because if you think about it, if this were to happen, X isn't, you know, I said you'd have to have X. That's not true. I mean, I could communicate with somebody through Zoom. Mm-hmm. I could communicate with somebody through Apple mm-hmm. itself has, you know, FaceTime calling, which is not a phone. That's an IP call. There are dozens and dozens of platforms that I can communicate across the Internet without a phone line. Gotcha. X is just one of them and will probably okay. be the have biggest. It. But, you know, Facebook will have Facebook calling. And so I, I don't see this being an, a monopoly. I see mm-hmm. it being a shift away from we all carry these little computers in our pocket. Why are we still using antiquated phone lines? Mm-hmm. I'm thinking West is not making a comeback. What's that, Henry? I think Western Union is not making a comeback. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> not anytime soon. Now, <laughs> here's another topic. So um, I'm pretty sure New Jersey really hates small business and specifically small <laughs> I saw that. small <laughs> trucking companies trucking because company. they are absolutely <laughs> trying to put them out of business with a one-two punch. Um, they have basically adopted AB5 in New mm-hmm. Jersey. Um, there was just a lawsuit about it that's been going on for 14 years, and um, the trucking company lost. 
it looks like they are going to have to pay their independent contractors as though they were employees. New Jersey is adopting basically the AB5 test now. Um, so that's one way you're going to eliminate small trucking companies that are leased. And not everybody has the ability or the desire to go get their own authority. So that's an attack on small trucking companies. And they also just um, voted a new bill that you will have to have $1.5 million worth of insurance. Double, I think, what the, the federal standard is. I mean, if that isn't an attack on small business, I don't know what is. The, 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 the mega fleets must just be throwing parties over this. They're probably happy. I would think the trial lawyers are probably the ones pushing this through, huh? They're doubling up the insurance because I could see uh, I could see some attorneys smiling ear to ear on this. So oh, no doubt. That's interesting. That would yeah. mean if if everybody bumps that insurance rate up and they keep demanding more and more insurance, how do we how do we kind of reel in these nuclear judgments they're just going to get worse and worse and worse right that's right because when they know you have more and more and more insurance that's it, that's a never-ending well that, that's a death spiral it's a vicious circle wow. yeah but i mean a nuke 1.5 million is not a nuclear verdict 40 million no understood uh, your point, your point well taken yes. that when there's a deeper pocket there's going to be a greater incentive to file a lawsuit that part didn't really phase. I mean, I saw that and I posted about it, but what the first part of what um, Devin said about uh, adopting the AB5, because the Department of Labor also announced this week, Devin, yes. very similarly, um, they added a clarification on the Department of Labor rule that they rescinded the prior administration's clarification in what 2021 about in, in uh independent contractor rule. Um, I read it. Uh, I'm not an attorney and, you know, I'm going to have to read it several more times, but it did not seem to be as onerous as the stupid AB5 or even the PRO Act. It, um, it relied more on an economic dependency determination. And to my way of thinking, uh, if you're an independent contractor, you're leased to a carrier um if you can you still have the freedom to go somewhere else and so i think to a greater or lesser degree the whole independent um economic dependency so is kind of lessened and therefore it may not be as bad as the other two variants like ab5 or new jersey's version of it i'm gonna play devil's advocate on that uh and I'm trying to find, right. I posted all this on um, X, and I'm tr for some reason, X kicked me off this morning. I, I, I tried posting, and it wouldn't let me post. I tried replying, and it wouldn't let me reply. And I thought, maybe I'll just log out and reset everything and log back in. So I logged out. Now it won't let me log back in. It's saying that there were too many attempts. There was only one attempt. I tried one time with the proper password, and, 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 what, and now it won't let me in, so I can't get back. That's where I had my notes on this. But let me try to sum it up. I'm not going to be able to get the exact maybe you, wording. Uh, go ahead. Maybe you can use your landline to give him a call. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I canceled all my phone I'm accounts. I'm sorry. There you go. <laughs> <a cheap shot. laughs> I, I canceled all my phone accounts. I can't. Um, 
<laughs> so, so here's the thing that there are five points to the ruling, mm -hmm. the final ruling from the Department of Labor. There are five points and they are weighted equally and they only need one to disqualify you as an independent contractor. And one of those, I think it's actually number five. I wish I had the wording in front of me because boy, you talk about creative wording. They wrote a, a, a ruling mm -hmm. in number five that is really the exact same thing as the B prong of the ABC test. But my God, you need 17 attorneys to help you interpret it. But once you do, it is the B prong. And what it's saying, again, in a very different way, much more convoluted and hard to understand, but what it's basically saying is if the primary business of that company, you cannot use an independent contractor for that purpose. That's the same thing as the B prong. That's, that's the one we hate. That's the one that mm -hmm. basically says you're never going to be able to lease to a carrier. You, you can't install drywall for Home Depot. Um, it eliminates huge industries completely using independent contractors. They just wrote it in a very different way. And they, uh, they came out and admitted it this week. Yeah, it basically is the B prong of the ABC test. Hmm. I'm texting you it, by the way. Yeah, I wish I had the wording in front of me because it was very creative. But uh, like I said, I put it up on X, and I, I don't know where else I have it, but um, I can't get in. Well, here, here I have it up. It, so number, there are actually six rules now. Uh, the fifth one is the extent to which the work performed is an integral part of the potential employer's business. This factor considers whether the work performed is an integral part of the potential employer's business, and specifically... This factor tilts in favor of an independent contractor relationship when the work performed is not critical, necessary, or here's where you, you've said it, or central to the potential employer's principal business. So you're right. That's the B prong right there. And don't you love the way they, they lie to us right to our face? It leans in favor of the independent contractor. Oh, hell uh -oh. no, it doesn't. It will eliminate many of the independent contractors that have been independent I contractors. So the new rule talks about, Kevin, uh, the nature and degree of control over the work and the worker's opportunity for profit or loss. So I guess it, it, it could depend, and I'll use Landstar as a model for example, since I'm familiar with that, is there's a lot of opportunity for profit or loss depending, you know, at Landstar, because the Landstar BCOs, have the freedom to pick and choose which loads they haul. Yep. They have made the investments by the worker, uh, none by the potential employer. So, um, and as for the nature and degree of control, um, they don't really, Landstar doesn't really have control other than when you have to comply with compliance and all that other stuff. But that, so does everybody who Correct. operates a commercial vehicle. So I don't know, just using the Landstar model, for example, I don't know that they would be threatened. I, to no me, way. it seems like the Landstar business model would, would stand. No, okay. it, it, it won't. That's, that's my okay. problem. 
if we use those just okay. those two factors that you just talked about, which I have believed in for a long time, that has been the primary determining factor up until now. D- did you have a chance for economic gain or loss? Yes, we do. If I do this wrong, I could lose a lot of money. If I do it right, I can make a lot of money. That's different than an employee. An employee just shows up, puts in their time, and gets paid for how many hours they worked. There's no risk to them. They can't show up to work and lose money, but an owner-operator could. That's what makes them an independent contractor. And up until now, that's how this would have determined, been determined. Landstar is almost the ideal case they exert very little almost no control over their independent contractors they make them let them make all their own choices for the most part and there is an opportunity for loss or gain the problem now is that fifth part says hey wait a minute landstar is a trucking company they're in business to move freight they can't use independent contractors for this purpose well and i guess the way I'm reading this rule, it says it you know, slightly modifies the earlier rule. They provide a six-factor economic realities test according to the DOL that aligns both the federal courts, blah, blah, blah. So I think they are looking at the totality of, in fact, they say that. The 2024 rule uses a totality of the circumstances analysis where no one factor is more heavily weighted than the others. So while I, and I agree with you, the extent to which the work performed is an integral part, so Yes, Landstar is a trucking company. They may argue that they know they're a platform, whatever, a broker. But even if they, I guess, were, uh, fell victim to that um, the extent of work is integral to part of the trucking business at Landstar, they would not become victim to the, the nature of the degree, degree of control, the opportunity for profit or loss, or the investment by the worker yeah. versus the employer. Here's the way it's written, though. So I don't know. You- Everyone is equal in weight, but they don't say anywhere that you have to, we have to disqualify you with all five. The way it's worded, they only need one factor to disqualify you. And and here's what I'm reading here. Here's what I worry about with that. This is so unclear. All the attorneys, the, they're all saying the problem here is it's so ambivalent, so unclear that we fear the government is seeking control and this allows them to virtually say anybody they want to say is not an independent contractor. Um, I will agree with you 100% that this is vague and it's going to unfortunately open every single judge is going to be an arbiter as to what qualifies or what doesn't. And that's nuts. Right. That, that's, um, that's the problem. So is, it is so unclear that business doesn't know what to do. And the, like you said earlier, the only real beneficiary to this are the attorneys. Somebody said it. Maybe it was you, Joel. That is absolutely true. Yep. This is so vague, and everybody has their own interpretation of what this means. My fear is we know why the government is doing this. They're doing it because they want more control. They're doing it because the unions are pushing them to do it. it why do you think it's happening in New Jersey? This is a union thing. 
And well, it's so vague that my fear is you're not going to be able to know until somebody takes you to court. And that's a huge problem for business. Correct. The businesses are going to look at that. Yeah. Nobody's going to understand it. Obviously, the attorneys are going to love it because you're going to have to retain an attorney just to even think about this subject because it's it's so vague and it's it'll be problematic and businesses that can run away from New Jersey and set up shops somewhere else are definitely going to do that. That is going to be a, a, a huge, huge problem. Well, yeah, it looks like you know, you're talking about Jersey. Jersey. Two of them. You, you talked about Jersey. Throw, throw the third thing in there. You said the one-two punch that every once in a while they start doing that deal where they pull over trucks and find out if they delivered or picked up in New Jersey and, and their minimum corporate tax deal and end up impounding the trucks and all that. I haven't heard them doing that in a while, but I remember it, that was a big deal different times. And that, that and was I a, all this stuff. That was a big deal. So I'm, yeah. I, I'm, I'm, you know, we're trying to make a living. I'm getting tired. <laughs> People trying to stop it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, all right. Um, last one on my list. Um, is anybody aware of the fact that there has been no freight moving back and forth between the U.S. and Mexico for over 48 hours? I was not aware of that. Yeah. I live here, and, and I heard the bridge no, was all like... backed up, but I'm not trucking right now. But I, I, I know that the loop bridge that goes across the World Trade Bridge was shut down. Yeah, it it's... Um some sort of a uh, computer system glitch um, I found some uh, let's see the computers on the Mexico side of the Ote Mesa port of entry in California began malfunctioning on Wednesday morning limiting the amount of trucks that could cross into the United States for nearly 24 hours Um, it was back up but then they're having some other issues Uh, the computer system in question is operated and kept up by the Mexico National Guard. Uh, border traffic in South Texas was also affected this week um, by another outage involving an outage of Mexico customs equipment. I didn't realize there were two different stories going on. I was talking about the one in Texas, but it looks like it's also happening in California. Wow. Hmm. That's an odd coincidence. Yeah, it is. Yeah, this one one company says every load means at least $250 to our drivers, more if you have to drive to Los Angeles or to the east. So we lost about $3.5 million due to this malfunction. One company. Well, for what it's worth, Kevin, I just looked up on Google Maps because it's literally within a mile of me. I don't go over that way if I'm not going to work, but... It's not backed up at the border right now. Maybe they're getting it cleared. That one. Uh, that one seems a little odd. Yeah, my wife just shared with me that the systems of, was. She just heard that the system across the border was down as well. Yeah, I've heard forty-eight hours now. Um, as far as I know, it's still down. So uh, we'll see. Forty-eight hours. That's uh, that's all I had on my notes. Anybody else have anything, or do we want to go to calls? What do we want to do here? I got one thing really quick um, that I think we really need to 
address so people are clear on this. Um, and, and sometime, Kevin, you, you pick it. I don't know, maybe we do a special thing on this. I would really, really like to get into the weeds on the whole direct drive, overdrive thing, um, gearing trucks to run in direct, and especially new trucks. Um, and I know I'm going to be cutting against the grain on this. It's probably a bad idea. In fact, I'm actually working with Pepsi right now on this very subject. They like to spec super direct trucks, and we're talking about doing some iTorque work and, and going to compare this. So your one question that you say we should always ask is why, when somebody says, you know, gear a truck to run in direct or gear it to run in overdrive. Yeah. I think we really need to break that down and get a little more clarity on this issue because there are a lot of people that are running into Volvo dealerships and they, they want the truck to run in direct and it should not be running indirect it needs to run in overdrive to get maximum fuel efficiency out of the truck you're shooting yourself in the foot when you're trying to back well, that truck up and run it indirect joe adding to that you know running from the freightliner detroit side slightly different platform but mm -hmm. the, the figures to me that don't get asked enough are mm -hmm. one and, and the worst one I ever saw, the guy come in, he said he wants to be able to run 75,000 miles, 75 mile an hour at 80,000 pounds, which turned out it was a diminishing load one way empty and they want to do 75 for about an hour a day. It turned out the average speed on their current trucks were seven miles per hour. So mm -hmm. why would you even focus on the other side of it, right? But to me, the right. one question that doesn't come up often enough, because it's fine to say you want the truck to be able to run 75, 80, whatever, right? But what I find is the higher they say the speed is, the less time they actually spend there. And the other figure that I like to look at for which way I go, if it comes down to two different gear sets and making that decision, is not just the speed they want to run, but what is their true, real, average speed, which, as you know, even on the mileage forms, if you put down your average speed, everybody says you're putting around, but you're not. That's your average speed. The other figure that I don't think gets thrown in there often enough that also changes some of them figures around is what is your average load weight I, along so with he, how many of those miles are empty. Yeah, I, so. I agree with everything you're saying, um, and all that stuff is important. I, I think the basis for the understanding of why running indirect for newer equipment is not a good idea. It's purely the physics of it, um, exactly what's going on with the engine, how much drag loss is associated with mechanical drag, pumping losses, thermal dynamics in the engine versus the transmission. So hey. a lot of people understand that we have a efficiency gain in the transmission by running direct drive. In today's new transmissions, that is a very, very small gain. It's typically 1% or less. When you look at the associated RPM drop in the engine, the gain is typically much bigger. So you're better off taking the, the gain in the engine and running an overdrive. The other thing that people completely miss is as we get more aggressive with downsped gearing, the steps between the transmission don't change, but the RPM drop does. And when we're looking at the old-style manual transmissions and you're trying to put into that 
that uh, type of duty cycle, the, the gathered gears at the top of the transmission start to work against you because of the RPM uh, drop and it, it, because it's a percentage of the rear end gear. Hey, Joel. And, well, and even, that, even talking with people, just getting them to understand that we don't, with most of the new transmissions, basically anything at the 12 speed, we don't live in a .73 overdrive world anymore, which was hey, probably correct. one of the more common. Hey, Joel. And, and, and the, the rear end number and what they associate with whether it'll pull or whether it won't pull, even forgetting about the down speed beating. Joel? You know, people don't realize a 342 with a .73 overdrive is identical to a 250 direct drive. Correct. There's yes. not anybody hearing me? In the world. And, you know, you're, you're here, Kevin. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I, I'm going to jump in here, Joel. I'm going to make a prediction. I completely mm -hmm. agree with you. And I want to dedicate an entire show to it. Maybe we don't even take phone calls that day until we have about two hours to try to explain the history of all this. And the way I would want to do it is go all the way back to the way we used to gear mechanical trucks and why. Then moving yeah. into the early electronics and why we started looking at direct drive. There was a good reason for it. Um, and then move mm -hmm. into what's changed and why we don't have to limit ourselves to direct drive anymore and try to lay it out as logically as we can. But here's my prediction. Mm -hmm. 10 years mm -hmm. from now, 10 years from now, we'll be doing it again. We'll still be, not again, we'll still be doing it. We will never, ever get this across completely. Think about it. When mm -hmm. when did you start specking direct drives because you realized it was more efficient at that time? What year was that roughly? Right. So that that started in the early nineties and right. I was a direct drive guy right up to about two thousand and seven. Yep. Until I really started to figure this out. And now you couldn't you couldn't give me a direct drive uh as the final ratio in a transmission and I would I would never spec a truck to run in direct drive. Um, now, I will use direct drive during the day when it makes sense, but there's, there's just limited opportunity when it, when it absolutely exactly. makes sense with today's powertrain. So exactly. the versatility, but, you, you have but, to have the versatility with the efficiency. Otherwise, you put yourself in a box. Exactly. But well, think about it. The, yep. the, the other thing, going back to the good old days, and, and you know this, well, Kevin does too as well. Back in the day before they had electronic controls on the engine to do the dreaded speed limiter, they, they used to just gear bind them. And, and it had nothing to do with efficiency. It had to do with the, we're going to make sure the truck can't do over 60 well, or whatever here, that was. Here's my point about this. Early 90s, you were specking direct drive. I was specking direct drive. We've been explaining why on those trucks we did it because the inefficiencies of the transmission, all the other things. And here we are, how many years later? 30? Mm -hmm. And we're still trying mm -hmm. to get people to understand that. When, you, when they hear 264 <laughs> gears, they're like, oh my God, you'll never get up. We're still fighting with that. And now oh, this, yeah. this next evolution is honestly more complicated and more nuanced. So, yeah, I, I think it's something we're going to be talking about and trying to explain to people for a long time. And then we, we still have to remember, I do on this show, that I'm dealing with a lot of people that are running older trucks and probably will be for a long time. So I've got to keep clarifying 
why we're saying it on this generation of trucks, but not on this generation of trucks. Correct. Yes. That's well, unfortunately, Kevin, we, we have moved on a good bit from talking about that we should have a mechanical engine. A, a little bit. A little bit. But, but again... All the work I do with Pittsburgh Power, nobody in the country does more with mechanical engines than Pittsburgh Power. It, it's, it, it's almost Correct. coming back. There was a time where it had almost disappeared, and all of a sudden, they got this huge influx of people that started rebuilding mechanical Cummins. <laughs> that is interesting. But the, the one thing I just want to make people clear, and this applies to the, the new trucks, if you go into a dealer and you're going to insist on a particular set of gearing, and and a lot of the automated manual transmissions, they don't even really have the logic to where it's going to run in direct like you want it to, they're probably going to make you sign a waiver if they're going to sell you that truck. Mm -hmm. Because it goes against all of the engineering that was involved to figure out how to make that truck as efficient as it could be via the gearing. So we've talked about the internal architecture of engines. Um, you know, the, the Volvo and the Detroit are probably going to run at lower RPM than the Cummins and the Packard. I'm not saying that's good or bad or, or anything. I'm just saying that's the facts. That's, they are going to run at lower. They, they have engineered in certain limits on these engines because they know it's going to impact the durability over time of not only the engine but the driveline. They have certain startability guidelines that the industry uses mm -hmm. as industry norms. And when you start to travel outside, and, and I get it that, okay, driver skill, a good driver could probably deal with that, but a dealer and the OEM, they would never build a truck based on the skill level of the driver. Can't do that because you never know what you're going to get. So just, just be aware of that. They want you to put. The, mm -hmm. In many cases, with it, they they want you to put a higher deposit down too. For yeah, down right. They'll yes, yes. They'll want crazy deposit because they really don't want to sell you that truck because the engineers are in their ear on one side saying this is a mistake. The customers saying no, this is what I want. So I guess it's just important that people understand the differences in the concept and why, why. I guess the question Kevin always wants to ask is why. Here is why you run downstead with overdrive. Here is why you would do a direct drive, what the equipment is, what generation the equipment comes out of, and when it makes sense to do it. And it's very confusing. And it's, I, I know there are just a ton of people confused. I'm, I'm just getting overloaded oh, by yeah. this, but I want to run in, I want to run in direct. And my question is, well, why do you want to run in direct? Right. Well, it's more efficient. How do you know it's more efficient? <laughs> it is more efficient in the transmission, but you right. have to look at the truck holistically. And if you don't do that, right. you're going to make a mistake here. So it's just really important. I think that we go over this in detail and, um, we, we do dedicate a show to it if we can because people yeah. people need to understand this. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with you, Joel, on that. And but the only part I disagree with you is them getting uh, pushed back from engineering side. I think it's more from because you know you as well as I do. We get to work with the engineers. They're all for a lot of this stuff. It's 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 levels down below that that have. Um, interaction with the salespeople along with 
the sales managers at many of the dealers because they're like, oh, we're going to have to sell this thing used at some point. Nobody wants this or nobody wants that. You know, we've run into it with the six-by-twos. We've run into it with the liftables. We've run into it with the wide-base singles. And back in the day, you ran into it with the fact that it was going to be an electronic engine. Here's, but mm-hmm. I, I don't think it's actually up at the, the at least at the high-level engineering staff because they know why they did it. Well, here's what here's what mm-hmm. we're facing at the OEM level. The engineers want to build the best trucks they can, whether it's performance, efficiency. I mean, that's just what engineers do. That's how they think. The problem is at the mm-hmm. OEM level, engineers don't make final decisions. Accountants and attorneys do. Mm-hmm. To, to, to a certain degree, that is true. Um, and, uh, of course, a lot of this is they have to meet certain environmental regulations. And now and safety. It's, 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 it's becoming very clear that gearing is going to impact particulate matter. It's going to impact NOx, where we've never looked at it that way before. Right. You build an engine, you put an engine on a test stand, you measured NOx, you measured particulate, slapped an EPA sticker on it and out the door. As these engines become more and more complex, they're going to have to take into account the steps between the gears, the, the, the final overall ratios, the gear ratio, the tire size. It's all going to impact emissions to some degree or another. Mm-hmm. So this, this stuff is going to continue to become more and more complex. As an industry, as owner-operators, I think we have a very poor understanding of any of this. I, I, don't, think, I don't think hardly anybody gets this. And we just want to make sure when we're making recommendations that we're making the right recommendation. And when somebody asks us why, we can answer why. And uh, you're right, Kevin. Older equipment, um, different architecture, all this stuff comes into play on why you would want to gear a truck to run in direct or if you'd want it to actually run in overdrive. And uh, there's a lot of work to be done here. So, you know, it would be great and, if we could do a show dedicated to this. Yeah, and we should. And, and here's another confounding factor. We have to look at the different architectures and the different drive lines available today. When we go back, there was a time yeah. where you had a couple of choices of drive lines, several choices of engines, and, you know, you could put all those combinations in almost any OEM truck. But, it, it, but they mm-hmm. were all basically the same. There wasn't much difference mm-hmm. in any of those engines. We spec'd them the same. We ran them similar, um, pretty darn mm-hmm. close. Now, though, look at the difference between Volvo architecture and driveline and pack car Cummins. So uh, we have to now explain that, that the way we just spec'd this Volvo, Mack, Freightliner, possibly international, you can't use those specs for a pack car or a Cummins. And here's why. Correct. Correct. Right. We have to be able to answer that question, why. In the past, when you went to buy a truck, and, and I done this when I was first starting out, you would take, okay, I want it to be at least 450 horsepower, I want a 308 ratio, and I want a 10-speed in it. Right. You would go to every manufacturer with those same specs, and they would quote you on that, and pretty much they're going to perform fairly close <laughs> to whoever was, was cheaper. Yeah. It does not work that way. Now, if you brought that spec into a Volvo dealer and you bought that truck, it's going to be horrible. You may go into a Packard dealer and buy a truck with those specs, and it's going to perform fairly fairly decent. 
So you've, you've really got to understand the why and, and answer these questions, not just throw around rear-end ratios and gearing recommendations. Tell us why and, and put some meat on the bones. Because if you don't, you're going to make a mistake. And I, I just hate to see people spending two hundred, two hundred fifty thousand dollars on a new truck make that mistake. Yeah. That'll put you out of business. I agree. Well, and we said that it's changed a lot. Has it really? Because back in the day, you know, you spent a, a, a ninety-two series Detroit a lot different than you would even a series sixty Detroit or a cat or whatever. So there used to be some pretty good variances between the brands back in the day as well. Those two-stroke Detroits wanted a whole different ballgame, and when done right, would perform all right. You didn't try to set up one of them like you would a cat. Well, you're sure. showing I, your I age after, now, Henry. Yeah, after the two-stroke exited and we got into the very early electronic engines is where the similarity and the basics yeah. became applicable across the board. Yeah. Yep. Um, everybody's doing the same thing. Inline six-cylinder, electronic controls, right? relatively right. close in displacement, relatively close in horsepower. Mm-hmm. So the gearing and everything would be the same. And, um, and, and when you even when you looked at the power curves on the engine, they would pretty much overlay. Uh, everybody mm-hmm. basically made horsepower up around fifteen to 1,800 RPM, and that's the way it works. And behind that's that right. engine, no matter who manufactured the engine, mm-hmm. we were all putting the same gearboxes behind them. Yes. We yeah. didn't have yeah. proprietary transmissions and proprietary differentials, and we were putting the same transmissions and differentials behind any of the OEM engines, and it worked okay. And those were our only choices. Sure. And a lot of times, that yeah. was our limiting factor. We've talked about that. Not having transmissions that, that we wanted, we knew we could have made them more efficient. You just didn't have the option. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, after Rockwell left, with yep. came Meritor, but after they left, it was pretty much eating road rangers. There it was. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we had Spicers for a little while, but they they kind of got out, and, it, and but, uh, it became dominated by Eaton Fuller. What is fascinating about that whole discussion is when you talk to especially owner-operators and small fleets, they typically complain about the proprietary nature of the drive lines going forward because it says it limits their choices. The only thing the proprietary driveline is doing is it may limit your choices on what you're actually buying, but it increases your versatility or your choices in operation. And that's the important part right Mm -hmm. there. You know, a good analogy to this, all the, uh, all the geeks will get this. So you don't hear much about it anymore because people just buy a computer and use whatever. But th- there was a time where it was all that, that battle behind PC, Mac, PC, Mac, which one's better. And the complaint from people who were big into PCs was, I can build a PC any way I want. I can go by this part and that graphic card, and I have all these mm-hmm. options that I can tweak. And, and I turn on this Mac, and I can't do anything. It's so proprietary. I don't ha- have these mm-hmm. options. And they were right in a sense, but I made that switch. I used to build PCs myself, really custom. And then I got tired of spending all of my time working on technology instead of it working for me. And I bought a Mac. And Mm -hmm. you're right, I can't customize it as much. I don't have as many options. But I also don't spend all my time working on it. It works for me. It works for me. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. All right. 
We're going to get to some phone calls. If you went back far enough in cars, they'd get the engine from one person, a transmission from another. You know, it's not like that for the most part anymore. I mean, with maybe the exception of a Cummins and a Dodge, but for for the most part, it's a Chevrolet engine, General Motors transmission, rear axle, everything. You know, there it is from yeah. One hey, we are going to get to the calls because they're piling up. And uh, I'm going to take a cue from our president and I'm going to call the lid today at 10 o'clock. Um, so we got to get to some calls. We're going to head off to Indiana. Frank, welcome. Good morning. I've got a couple of questions for Joel. One is Volvo specific and one is not. So the, the whole gang may pitch in. Uh, Joel. Okay. I'm a company driver, and I've got a 2023 Volvo, and mm-hmm. all of these trucks have, and I've talked to other companies, so I don't think it's just mine. The cruise control will just cut out. Uh, it's almost like you just hit the, the cruise cancel button or something like that. Mm-hmm. And then another issue is, say you're going down a hill, and you tap the brakes to, to slow down, stay at the speed limit you want. You cannot resume until you hit get down below our governed speed. Have you seen that, that or are you aware of anything that's like that? All, that's all in the parameters. The cruise control can be set up a thousand different ways in the parameters. And I, I, I'm going to tell you that's how your company has chosen to structure the parameters. It may be that they just bought the truck with the default parameters and know nothing about the cruise control parameters and they're set at factory defaults, but um, you can absolutely set that cruise control functionality up to just about any way you like it. So you can resume on cruise at any speed without having to get below certain points. All that's in the parameters. Um, As far as the cruise control just cutting out, if you have the the, uh, safety radar with the following distances and everything, it will cut radar out or the cruise control out um, when you get within certain distances of, of vehicles. At first, it, it just tries to slow the truck down so you match speed. And if you close in a distance too close, it will turn the cruise control off and sort of make you get back on the, on the uh, foot. I have heard where people that have not had correct adjustments done on the actual camera and radar have some issues with the cruise control occasionally cutting out like it'll see a car up on a bridge or something if the radar's aimed too high and it it will say you know we got to slow down or whatnot so it could possibly be there as well your truck's new enough where i sometimes the um the 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 brake pedal or the the fuel pedal uh the electronic wiring up there will get a little bit goofy that that feeds the cruise control but uh I would assume you probably have parameter issues, well, not issues, but have chosen parameters that aren't real driver-friendly for whatever reason, and they may have an, an adjustment issue going on with the camera and the radar that makes the the driver assist safety features work. Gotcha. The next question I have is tag axle versus pusher. What are the pros and cons of each? Uh, we do have so, the tattoos, and we have the tag axle. Mm-hmm. And my my idea is, while it's not a big difference, that the tag axle can give you a little bit tighter turning radius because that drive axle is forward. It but does. what are some of the other pros and cons? 
so here are after studying this for about 30 years here's what my preference is for a pusher and not a tag so think about you're in a drop lot it was just plowed and you've got snow plow overburden in front of the trailers you know that little six or eight inch hill of snow and you're trying to back under that trailer with a tag axle that dead axle hits that snow it's going to lift the frame you're going to lose traction you're going to have a lot of issues trying to get under that that trailer with a with a, a tag a pusher is far superior in backing under trailers than, than what a tag is also out on the highway uh, a pusher gives you a longer wheelbase which helps with the ride quality and it decreases steering sensitivity when you're on slicker or slippery highway surfaces which is really important in order to stay safe so the shorter wheelbase mm-hmm. trucks they, they react faster to steering wheel inputs and are more likely to be involved in a, a slip and slide type of incident than a longer wheelbase truck is and you pick up a better ride quality and and generally your your tire wears a little bit better um, the shorter wheelbase truck when it when you are turning it tight like that, you get into some steer and drive tire wear issues. Uh, the way kingpins and trailers are set in the United States and what we typically refer to as common wheelbase lengths, um, the, the pusher is going to be far superior to a tag unless you need the maneuverability. If you are in an environment where you are making tight turns all the time, absolutely, you're 100% right. Uh, you go to Europe, it's typically offered in both variants. Um, the guys that are working in the cities or in the ports, you know, they, they want the uh, the tag axle. The guys that are on the highway, they want the, the pusher axle. So that's my take on it. Uh, yeah, and I'm agreeing with you on that. Go as well, you know, plus it lends itself to being able to lift it. If you lift the tag with where our fifth wheel is, it lifts weight off of the steer axle, which could give you handling problems on a tag. And the other thing that I wanted to ask a question of the – do we call them collars anymore, being we're not using landlines? But anyway, (laughs) my my question would be, when you were saying that the cruise cuts out, is that like when it's pulling a hill right towards the top of the hill? Because if it was a Detroit, they call it IPM. I don't know what Volvo calls it, but I know you have a similar program. And I hear this all the time that my truck was pulling really good up the hill and it got right near the top and it's, the cruise just shut off and it fell on its face, which is because it's reading the maps via terrain and GPS to make the best decisions in regards to efficiency, not necessarily what the driver would want. Correct. No, this is, that is the, correct. the cruise is actually turning off. Uh, so like in the Volvo, I see down here the little setting that I'm currently set at 60, and mm-hmm. that 60 will go away, and I can be on flat ground and nothing around. I, the, if I have the, the engine brake in the automatic and climb a hill, it will do that, what you're talking about with okay. the cutout, uh, or the, mm-hmm. the slowdown for oh. efficiency through the hills. Well, there's a funny the, story there with what completely off then so, it just continues to climb until it tops so my question to you on that when it happened and Joel you'll find this funny because I remember when my truck caught COVID mm-hmm. and, and when I say my truck caught COVID 
I had this one place in Mississippi where my cruise kept shutting off and I couldn't turn it back on because I was in an area where the collision mitigation saw absolutely nothing metal anywhere around it, not a sign, not a reflector, not a anything, which indicated to the system that it was broke so it would shut off the cruise. <laughs> and, and what was funny, when this was happening to me, it kept happening, I think it's a 68-mile marker in, in uh, Mississippi on I-10. So I got a hold of the person in engineering, and I'm like, it keeps happening at the same mile marker. And they're like, has it been happening more since COVID? And I'm like, what's COVID got to do with it? Well, it was because there was less traffic. If there was any vehicles around me going across there, it didn't do it. But they had also told me about one that was doing that up in Canada where it was way out on its own, nothing around, and the system would see nothing, which it would indicate that it was broken. Oh, wow, that's interesting. So, so it would be interesting if, if, you, if you got your truck pointed towards something, if it came right back, because it might be... You know, a lot of this business is monkey see, monkey do. I wouldn't be surprised that something very similar or exactly the same wouldn't be in play. Put your license plate on a hinge with a string, and if it happens, just drop your license plate out and pull it back up. Hey, there you go. There you go. <laughs> Joel, I've got, I've got one more question, and, and I may have misheard sure. you on this in the past. Mm-hmm. I would swear I heard you say that Volvo engineered the trucks loaded as heavily as possible. So I have uh, always, in my, uh, a lot of the drivers with the weight evenly split, but after I thought I heard you say that, I run my tandems as close, uh, my drives, I'm sorry, as close to 34,000 as possible. Yes, I misheard you. always. No, that is correct. Axles, not, not Volvo, but any axle is manufactured to run most efficient when heavily loaded. That is 100% a drive axle. That is 100% correct. So you did hear that right, and you are doing the exact right thing. If you can bias more weight over the drive, always do it, as long as you're legal. So if I'm not up to that weight, I don't go looking for more weight to haul around because right. I'm simply carrying weight. But it's, it's kind of funny <laughs> because once I heard you say that, uh, I had learned – that because we haul a lot of meat, so like right now I'm at seventy nine thousand. Mm-hmm. But I've learned that when I'm at the meat plant, when I go to set my my tandems, mm-hmm. I can look out my window at the back of that bottom aluminum step. Yep. And back up, you'll pick a spot on the ground. Back up until that spot is at the front of that aluminum step, and that mm-hmm. will almost always put my tandems right where they need to be for me to be at awesome. at thirty three thousand plus. On the drives. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Awesome, so, awesome. Well, good but deal. I appreciate your time, guys, and, and the information. Y'all have a great day. You're welcome. Thanks for you the too. call. Let's go to Mississippi. Matt, good morning. Good morning, everyone. Howdy, uh, howdy. I uh, got a, I think I mentioned it uh, a while ago that I have a friend of mine that's getting to demo one of the new international trucks. Mm-hmm. Oh, cool. So, just out of shits and giggles, he well, he called me last week and said, you know, it's possibly coming in the next few weeks, and it's the salesman. It's all about fuel mileage and all that. And I said, well, if it's all about fuel mileage, why don't we see if we can get the truck for two weeks? Your company driver drives it one week, and I'll drive it the second week. Mm-hmm. So he called Monday, and the salesman agreed to it. 
you know, kind of told nice. them about awesome. the Rutherford show, and so it's all about promoting it. Yeah, good. <laughs> so all week I've been good. Been reading. I've been wanting to hear numbers out of them. Yep. So all week I've been reading about this S13 is the is the model mm-hmm. of the engine. Mm-hmm. And I mean, they released it what fall of '22 was the unveil- unveiling, but mm-hmm. the trucks are just now starting to hit the dealerships. So mm-hmm. we should start hearing some numbers. So good. So looking at a lot of the specs, it's it's very similar to the, the Volvo. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there are some some specific differences. The biggest thing that international is pushing is simplicity and weight so it is mm-hmm. lighter weight and their simplicity is it has no egr now yes it, so it does have egr it doesn't correct, have cool if I, egr cool the egr so there's no egr cooler but it still has egr is my understanding yeah. i've yeah. heard this four or five different times and so my brother called and they said they told him, yes, it has EGR. It does not have an EGR cooler. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'll have, I'll have to so read I was looking at one. At, mm-hmm. they, they had one at the Midwest Truck Show. I was able to look under the hood. Yeah, it still has EGR, just not the cooler. Okay. Yeah, in, the, in the wording, it says it's 50, 40 or 50 pounds lighter because of mm-hmm. it does say EGR cooler, mm-hmm. but I want to say it says piping, mm-hmm. too. Well, maybe that's just the... The coolant piping. Could be. Um, yep, right. There'd be less piping without a cooler. Yeah. So, okay. And then um, I had a truck pull out in front of me here, so I lost my train of thought. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, yeah, the transmission is a T14. That's the model. 14-speed. Mm-hmm. Um, they're calling it crawler gears, but it's not, not near as deep as your... Correct. Your real deep direct, what is it, 34, 34 32, yeah, yep, okay, 32, so correct, yep. The, the lowest gear in the International is a 20.81. So it's more in line with the 13-speed eye shift than the 14-speed on the, on the reduction. Well, that would be workable, for sure. Yes, yes, right. for on-highway application, it's fine. Single overdrive. Same, almost identical steps between the gears, I think, is the I-shift as well. Yep, mm-hmm. all, all 29%, except for 13th to 14th is 28%. Mm-hmm. And 0.78 final ratio mm-hmm. overdrive. So, mm-hmm. yeah. What's the ratio? It sounds like the demo is going to be a 215. Okay. That's what it, well, that's, went yeah, all that's the way. What it needs. Yeah, it's what it needs to be. Uh, the the one thing that I have questions on when I looked at that engine, it was down in Orlando, and they had it on a stand, and um, I went over and I was looking at it very close. And this is my opinion, and this is just an opinion. When I look at engines and I'm trying to assess the initial durability, I never see lightweight as a good thing. I just don't. I look at weight per liter of engine displacement, and I'm always more comfortable in terms of, you know, when I'm thinking about the durability of the engine, the heavier that is. Because typically that means you're going to have a thicker head, bigger head bolts, more head bolts, um, you know, possibly thicker uh 
castings. Uh, the crankshaft is where I'm really concerned because when I looked at the back of the engine, they have X number of bolts securing the flywheel on, and it it doesn't look anywhere near as big as what the the Detroit and the Volvo are in terms of the physical component size. And when we're running at these downsped speeds, to me, what becomes extremely important is uh, journal overlap on the crankshaft. And I, look, I get it that there are new and exotic alloys and metals that they make things out of, but I don't think that that necessarily replaces engineering fundamentals. Um, and so I'm, I don't want to say that I'm pessimistic about it. It does concern me a little bit. And I do not have the specifics on that crankshaft yet. I've asked for it, and they have not sent it to me. Um, or my brother has asked for it. They, it's they not haven't online. Yeah, no, it's not anywhere that I could find it. And, and I think they've got a lot of things right with this engine. Don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm not dissing oh, it yeah. a bit. I think it's, I think it's going to do. It's going to be a very strong performer. It's going to do very well. I'm just a little concerned about the crankshaft, and and maybe it's not warranted. You know, maybe it'll be just fine, but uh, we'll see. Well, Joel, going in on that, you know, look at where they could have lost their weight. Not necessarily that that adds or takes away from the performance, but without the EGR cooler and the associated plumbing with that, yeah, you'd lose a pretty good chunk of weight to make your engine say it's lighter. Uh, sure, so they don't have a compound turbo on it, so which yep. you know could benefit that engine. Maybe, maybe, maybe not, but that's a big chunk of weight off as well. So yep. the durability yep. of the internals might be there. It could be. Yeah, it could be. I'm not saying that it's not. I'm just, just asking the question, and I haven't been able to get any mm -hmm. answers to those, to those questions. So that's my line yeah, of thought. The other... My other line of thought, just real quick on this, Matt, um, is, okay, so we don't have cooled EGR anymore. Uh, we know that cooled EGR does a very good job at controlling NOx. We also know that today's engines with cooled EGR use much less EGR in general than mm -hmm. what they've done just a few years ago, and that we are controlling NOx more with uh, the DEF on the backside of the combustion process, not internally in the mm -hmm. cylinder. And when we look at emission system problems through our fleet or my brother's fleet, uh, it's always the DEF injector. I mean, that's basically what it comes down to. If we have problems, it's the DEF injector. This engine is going to use significantly more DEF because there is no cooled EDR to control NOx. They had decided to go very high on the uh, combustion temperature to gain efficiencies, which makes sense. But you have to control all that NOx on the backside. And my understanding, it's a dual def system on it. So I, yeah. I don't know that we're gaining anything. It's just different. I can't say if it's better or worse. We don't know. I know a lot of people are like, oh, it's great. There's no more cool EGR. Well, okay, explain why that's great. Yeah, I'm, I'm, exactly. not, I'm not. I'm not sure if it is. Uh, uh, this is tried and true. It it does control. It is very effective at controlling knocks without raising your expense 
to have to buy more death fluid. So it's going to be very interesting when you get this thing out and run it, um, mm-hmm. understanding that it's not fully broken in. It, it's, I'm going to be very interested to see what the death numbers are. Well, I'm likewise. Uh, I'm interested in hearing the performance out of this. I, I've, I've heard horror stories in, in Europe about the, the death consumption, you know, being up to 10% higher than what we're seeing on the the low EGR engines that, you know, me and Henry are running right now. And, and you know, DEF is on minus between 5 and 8% of fuel, and I'm hearing that it's going to be, you know, 10 to 15% on uh, in right. it. But it's all, it's all hearsay. I don't know any of that for a fact. So it'll be very nice. Which is all right nice. if, they pick up their, yep. if they pick up their fuel mileage right. enough from it, it offsets offset it. So you got to figure the yes. whole thing out. But, yes, correct. Right. You know, when we talked about EGR earlier, we could do a whole show because EGR's got to be the most misunderstood thing that's on an engine. Uh, I agree. Everybody thinks it's about <laughs> yeah. getting unburnt gases out and all sorts of stuff of feeding the dog its own uh, yeah. crap and, and everything else. And it has not, it's just an inert gas. That's all it is. And a lot of people get... A lot of people get their, you know, panties in a, in a bind when they start talking about deaf consumption. You know, when you're talking about something that's, you know, between two and three cents per mile, big deal. Uh, fuel cost is, is, you know, unless you're mad, you know, you're running 10 to 15 times that number. So, you know, if, if they did correctly, uh, and that's an if, increase fuel economy to offset that extra deaf consumption, um, then that's a winner. If they didn't, well, then it's a step backwards. But we'll have to see. It's just ironic to see see them go from, you know, mega EGR to now mega def. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So we yeah, know how well it worked out before. But anyway. So yeah, the, the weights here, your D13 Volvo, the published weight on that is 2635. Mm-hmm. The S. 13 International published weight is 2284, which is mm-hmm. 351 pounds difference, and they're claiming mm-hmm. 50 pounds of it is the EGR cooler, so 300 pounds mm-hmm. difference. I'd say the two biggest chunks on that? on that are probably the, the EGR cooler and the and the uh, compound turbo, and all the mechanism that goes together with that. Those two items add up a good deal of weight. Yep. Oh. Yeah, that's the that's their their other claim too. Is it's a, a fixed blade turbo? It's not VGT. Mm-hmm. It's more more simple, less moving parts. So for yeah. maintenance on a fleet, that's that's what they're trying to claim. Is there's it's simpler. Mm-hmm. Well, Detroit went that way to an asymmetric turbo. So all right, you know, but you, gotta... you ought to you ought to see their you ought to see their wastegate on it, Joel. I got to see one. It's huge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nice. 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 We'll definitely have to check it out. Well, I don't, I don't know what it does for anything, but you know how usually the wastegate's a fairly small hole. It's it's, mm-hmm. it's large. <laughs> really? Wait. That's oh it. yeah. The, the wastegate to me looked like it belonged on an Indy car or an F1 car. You know, it looked like a it was huh. large. All right. Gotcha. We're we're gonna grab another call. We're off to Alabama. Bill, welcome. Hey, how you doing, Kevin? Hey. Good. Got a question. You know, we're talking about this AB5. What's the biggest contractor in America right now? Who well, hires no, the most contractors in America? The government. government. How is the go? How is the government going to do this? 
when they ain't even write their own damn law. Well, they, they the will, I'm sure they will business. just exempt themselves from the rules like they normally do. Yeah, yeah. Well, they, they may not want to exempt themselves. They may want more employees and, and whatnot. Speaking you know, of more which, more people dependent upon them. Yeah, yeah, that that's a good point. Speaking but, of which, you know, the the only thing in my mind that's worse for business than a union is a government union. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was going to yeah, look how much work for the postal service. Yeah, yeah, they want more people in the government union. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> what I was going to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. The postal service is a model of efficiency. Yeah. Yeah, I was listening to you guys. I was like, the government's shooting themselves in the foot. But if they accept themselves, that's just hey, putting a bad taste in a lot of them. No, they, hey, Bill, they're, they're not shooting themselves in the foot. They have no need for profit. They'll just spend more of our money to have union employees. That's all. Exactly, and think about that. So you come out yeah, of a contractor. Talking, but what I'm talking about, Lockheed Martin... Uh, Dynacor and all these big contractors that come in, they don't. The government doesn't have that kind of money to build. Those more. Uh, hey, hey, don't don't confuse yeah. government contracting with independent contractors. Lockheed Martin is oh, not okay. ever going to be considered an independent contractor. That they have not. That has nothing to do with this. Oh. Okay. Uh, you know, unlike the Russians, and that's exactly what happened over there. Like the Russians, they own the state owns uh, Sukhoi and MiG and, and right. all of the manufacturers for the Russian airplanes over there. That's all government owned. Where over here, Boeing and and Lockheed and all them, they they are their own business. So right. yeah, you're correct. Doesn't, all right. Speaking of the post office, don't they use some independent contractors to deliver the mail where they do it in their own cars? Absolutely. Yeah. 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 And, so there we go. And, and here's where <laughs> the government writes its own rules again. If I use my car for my business, uh, I get a certain mileage allowance as a tax deduction. The postal workers who use their own car have their own rate. They don't use the rate everybody oh, else wow. uses. They have their own rate for that. Well, how about that? So you could probably afford to deliver the mail in me or Joel's truck? Uh, uh, yeah, probably. <laughs> you you could. You, you guys would be efficient enough. All right. It would be handy for break time. Yeah. All right. Let's go. go to Pennsylvania. Cole, welcome. Hi, Kevin. How are you? Good. What's on your mind today? Good. Uh, I wanted to. I heard Joel talking about the over, overdrive versus the um, direct, and I kind of wanted to quiz him on that. Joel, when you were okay. talking about that, with you're kind of more talking around the new equipment, right? Correct. Yes, relatively. Because you know Matt just called in a second ago, and and he's running overdrive in a you know in an older model truck, and and mm -hmm. that in that sort of a situation, there is a gain there, right? Well, a lot of it goes to the transmission itself. So today's single countershaft transmissions with helical cut gears, they have very targeted oil supply to those gears. They have planetary sets in the back, and they got rid of all the, the dual countershaft nonsense that was happening in the old manuals. So when you would run an overdrive, you had a lot of losses in the older style manual transmissions that you don't have today in today's 
single counter shafts, automated manual transmissions. So sure, a lot of times, if you've got an older manual transmission, just that fact alone might make sense to run in direct drive. You may save three to 4% versus the less than 1% that you're gaining with the uh, with the today's automated manuals, so that that does play a big part in it. Absolutely, right. And I heard you talk about there was that some real bad combinations back then. Like if you had a 13 speed, you definitely didn't want to be geared to run in 12. Henry, that's Correct. a good point. Is there? Kevin mentioned this, and I didn't quite catch this. this was a while ago. Is there a difference between the overdrive inefficiency in say eight in an 18 speed? and a 13-speed rather no. than the 10-speed? Really the same transmission, just an 18-speed at the bottom side of the gearbox to unlock and split the gear. So there, there is – hold on one second here. So now this, is, this gets confusing. So when you, go into, yeah, when you go into Eaton Fuller stuff, they have like what they call a 10-speed lightning, and I believe that lightning went to a planetary rear, so it got rid of the huge auxiliary section, and I think that may have a more optimized lubrication system on that transmission. So that particular model of 10-speed indirect will probably be more efficient than like a, a 13 or an 18 or a standard 10-speed. All of the okay, standard so manual transmissions that have the older style auxiliary section that have the standard amount of lube, it, lubrication in them, they're all going to be roughly the same, very close in terms of okay, efficiency that, in, in direct drive? Well, direct drive on 18-speed is 16th generally, and direct drive on a 13th generally 11th. Correct. Well, yeah, two down. So, But like on a 10-speed, because I have a 10-speed um, a behind a 2WS Cat, and i was really been wanting to get rid of that 10-speed because I can't stand 10-speeds. Uh, just for mm -hmm. the you know driving them, but right. um, we got to ask that question. I, the question of the day: Why? <laughs> why can't I stand driving them? Yeah. Or or why do I want to get rid? I want to get rid of. Well, it yeah. Why can't you stand drive driving at ten speed? Because you're gear bound all the time. <sighs> okay, so here's something to consider <laughs> when you're looking at this with the ten and the thirteen or the eighteen, whichever you want to go to, and. To me, the driver's preference on the, the transmission, how many gears he's got, I, I'm okay with whatever the driver prefers, but something to keep in mind, if you're just going to replace the transmission without doing a re-ratio, uh, you are still going to run into all the same situations in mm -hmm. terms of being gear-bound. You'll have more options within a limited range, but it's not mm -hmm. going to necessarily increase the range. Well, right. I guess what I was getting at was mm -hmm. Joel. I was I wanted to 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 do the you know what Matt's done to the two fifty three oh, gear okay. range adjustment for the for the two DS. So if I was to do that, I really don't want to stick with the ten speed because that's just going to be a nightmare. I want to go to an eighteen because well, well, I prefer the eighteens anyway. Well, I, I got I got you. Well, now hold hold up hold up a second because this is where it gets a little complicated that people miss this. So when you have a 10-speed with traditional gearing and say your 10-speed has, let's just say it's 25% steps in between each one of the gears, they're fairly wide, you like the 18-speed better because the steps are a little more narrow, the performance of the truck is a little bit better, and you have more options within the given range. When you put that more aggressive downsped gearing in, the steps in your 10-speed are going to remain the same, but 
the RPM on the gear drop is going to get much tighter, almost the same as the 18-speed. Um, mm-hmm. When you put an 18-speed right. on that gearing, then it gets really, really tight, and essentially what you're doing is you're going to limit yourself to overdrive or to direct drive. I'm not sure, and Matt would be able to answer this a little bit better, how useful it is to split gears when the RPM drops that tight. Mm-hmm. You may lose well, some of the flexibility. Was, yep. That's kind of what I was thinking about it, Joel, because if you, um, if you look in um, – if I was to, and I probably won't do this because the, the cost um, of changing transmission and rear end just probably doesn't make sense like Kevin always talks about, but the thought process is a, is a fun process. But if you sure. if you change to 253 and then want to run direct, that puts you at about 58 to 62, which is where I like to drive anyway, in direct, mm-hmm. right? But yep. then when you're super light, like if I'm deadheading out of Florida with one axle up, I could run single over and really you know, lay down that RPM, like you always say, is, is a good idea. Now oh, you're going oh, oh. into an inefficiency in the in the transmission, yes. but you might gain yes. it in the RPM down, like you always talk about. Uh, well, it's going to be that with a 10-speed. Correct. It's going to be close to a wash on your 18-speed because of the inefficiencies in the transmission when you're running in that higher gear. Yes, you do gain some inefficient or some efficiency in the engine, so it's kind of a, a, a trade-off with that. It's going to come down to terrain, weather conditions, and it's not going to be a clear-cut, slam-dunk home run that you are going to gain efficiency with that particular setup. So potentially you could, but I can't stand here today and say, okay, look, with that setup you're going to gain 5% by running it in overdrive when you're light. Well, single over, but you couldn't run it in double over. That's why I don't like the 10. No, because there's I got such you. a big jump between direct and double over, do, double over, but an 18 has a single over, so you could run it in like 17th gear, for example. But, so I remember, remember being around the engineers, the single over is the most inefficient gear within that transmission, and I don't even think Eaton recommends just staying in that gear because it generates a lot. But beyond oh, okay. beyond that, go back to what we said earlier. Remember, the step is large. But with re-ratio at the RPM drop will not be okay. near as big, and you may be happy mm-hmm. with that 10 speed. In that case, you're much better off to leave that transmission and do the re-ratio, because right, then right. you are going to gain. Know, that's a good then point. you yes, then you are going to gain that fuel efficiency. I can say without a doubt with that 10 speed that. When you use it in overdrive, you will gain that because it's a, it's mm-hmm. going to be more efficient because it, it's a single. I, I'm I'm assuming it's a single overdrive ten speed, correct? Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And, and yeah, I mean, so it's, so it's a point point seven four on the ten speeds, and the thirteens were point seven three. Yep. But yep. um, so that's a good point because if I'm changing transmission and rear ends, it's a lot of cost. If I'm only changing rear ends, mm-hmm. it's a lot smaller cost. And, and yep. it's not like I couldn't change the transmission later. I don't have to do them both. Cor- but correct. Right. That, that, that 10 speed has such a large jump between 9th and 10th or 8th and 9th that if you ever got to a hill that you couldn't climb in direct, of course, with the cat, you can climb most hills in, in, you, in the drive, you, you know, whatever you're cruising in. But there are some hills you have to shift down. That's just a large jump. So, so what, what, gear, what gear ratio do you have right now? What what rear axle ratio? That that truck has three thirty sixes. Okay, so re- just remember it's it's twenty percent 
of 336 is a bigger number than 20% of 253. So mm-hmm. what, you're, what you're talking about, I think, is what's going to surprise you. You're used to, by feel, that RPM mm-hmm. drop of your truck right now. When you re-ratio it to 253, it's, it's going to be tighter, and it's going to work yeah, to I've, your I've benefit. Yeah, I've done the math on that. So, yep. Yep. I, I, you know, in, in a good source, um, uh, Kevin, you might remember this, but um, one of the power hours you uh, had uh, – uh, Bruce on, and he he has a uh, spreadsheet that goes over gearing. You can get it from their website. That's a great spreadsheet, mm-hmm. and you can kind of do the math and figure out what it was. You know, if it, if you change that, what it's going to be dropping from ninth to eighth. And with the cat, as you know, it, it you kind of suffer quite a bit by jumping up in RPM. So if you're running thirteen hundred RPM and can't climb a hill, and you got to jump to nineteen hundred RPM, <laughs> it's a little bit. A little bit hard. Hey, um, hey, real quick, I think so, we kind of beat that one up. Um, well, uh, rolling back on that, which is why I, I said the why on it. You know, you're going to get the big bang from the rear axle ratio on that. And the other thing I'd add to it in your thought process, how much time do you really spend in a day going uphill? It's the thing we do the least of in a day, and yet it gets the most attention, and it affects our time the least. Absolutely. Bill. So you're just something to, right. to throw in your quill. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, as it stands now with 336s, it's pretty rare that I shift out of 10th. Um, right. But, so what but if you the did, problem is when I do, it just seems ridiculous how high the RPM is. Right. But it's the thing you spend the least of during a day, and it gets our most attention. Like when I go out to someplace with what I do with Brayton, and I'm sure Joel runs into the same thing, First question is, how does it pull a hill? And I'm always like, who cares? That's what I do the least. Absolutely. I spend more time on the flat or downhill than I ever do going uphill. Now, it, I'm going to argue a little bit on that one because with the 10-speed, uh, you're right. I don't shift out of 10th all that often until I hit a construction zone and the 55-speed limit comes. I don't have a gear for 55. I can't drive that. There's not a good gear for that cat. So I'm either running like 1,600 right. RPM or 1,100 RPM. And and if I have a heavy load on and, and don't aren't on flat, I don't like to run 1100 RPM on a cat to be honest with you. But yeah, it could do it if you're on flat ground. But so basically, what ends up happening is you end up putting it in ninth and setting the cruise at 55 because you don't have a gear to run 55. That's why I wanted the, the 18 speed or the 13. I get it. Have those those breakups of speed. I understand. Much like we figured the percentage, I, I think of it like when I used to race circle track. You know, it's the whole thing put together. And, mm-hmm. you know, construction, so we hit two areas, construction zones and going uphill. Of your day, what percentage of it is it? And usually it comes up to not that much. Right. No, you're right. It, it's, it's a convenience thing. You're right when it comes mm-hmm. down to. So let, let, me, let me run a couple numbers here for you real quick. So um, you are running at what RPM currently in your truck at the speed that you like to cruise at? Man, I haven't driven that truck in like six months. Um, so you have 336. I want to say it's like 13. Yeah, I, I drive about 62 in that truck. So uh, 1350. I want to say it's like yeah, somewhere around there. And that's that's in .73 overdrive, correct? .74. Okay, so .74 in that truck. Okay, so let's do a calculation. So that's 63 mile an hour, 1350 RPM. So you want to go to 253. 2.53, and the revs are still 513. It's a one-to-one ratio, and you still want to drive 63 mile an hour, correct? 62, yeah, I would just say 63. Uh, okay, so 
your RPM stays exactly the same. It does not right. move. There, there will be little to no fuel efficiency gain for you here if you, if you do this, because you, there's a, you might gain some efficiency in that transmission, and, and that is, that is going to be it. But you, you have none of the benefit of the lower RPM in the engine. So you, you don't get the, the double whammy. You only get the single part of this. Now, to, uh, to understand if you're going to have a fuel efficiency gain or not, what's your average gross combination vehicle weight? Do you know? Yeah, it's, I, I run spread axle flatbed, so I'm always heavy. Um, 48,000 okay, so pounds is my typical freight, in, so that ends up being 79, 78. Okay, in your case then, since you're heavy a lot, the direct drive, you're probably going to see the nudge. If you were light or lighter, just mm -hmm. leave it alone because you're running in overdrive, everything would be fine. Now, so in your case, you're going to see a, a, a bump. I don't think it's going to mm -hmm. be super dramatic, but you'll see a bump. Right. All right. Okay. I, hey, um, I, I think have a we comment. Beat that one, one up. If I could ask you, <laughs> go ahead. I have one comment about this, and then we're going to move along. Joel, um, I completely mm -hmm. agree with you. We need to do a show. We need to talk about this more. But look at how complicated <laughs> this one example was. I, I I get it. I completely get it. <laughs> uh, I I, co I completely get it. Yep. Uh, so there's right. just, just no one more question about about your purple sure. haze. Sure. Hey, um, if you had to guess. This is going to be a total guess because you can't prove it, but what would be the efficiency difference between Purple Haze 6x2 versus a same truck with a 6x4? Well, this isn't going to be a guess for long no. because no. Volvo is graciously sending me an almost identically spec 6x4, and we're going to run them head-to-head, -head, so we're about to find out. Awesome. Okay. Well, if you had to make a guess, what would your guess be? Uh, it's going to be 3 to 5%. I've done this internally. I've done this internally with my brother's fleet, not with Purple Hay specifically, but run six by twos versus six by fours, and it always is between three and five percent. I would expect this is going to be the same. Although, and here's another variable and some more complication for you, Kevin. So, what I've learned here recently on when you look at a Meritor drive axle and a Dana drive axle, when you look at efficiencies and you overlay them, they're, they're virtually identical. What they don't tell you is is that when they're measuring the efficiency, they measure it when it has torque applied. And then they also measure it when it's free rolling. When it's free rolling, the Dana is actually significantly more efficient than the Meritor axle. And when we get aggressively downsped, that free rolling aspect really starts to come into play. So it, we may get a, a little bit more than a 5% bump, but uh, we'll see. Time will tell. All right. Hey, um, if I'm... If if I'm still on here, Kevin, uh, mm -hmm. Henry, what, what would you say the gain would be from going from a spread axle flatbed to a tandem flatbed? I know you mentioned oh. that before that you don't like the spread axles. Uh, so back in the day when I was pulling flatbeds, and it just depends on one to another, but back then when I did the math on it, of course, trailer prices have changed. So go back to trailer prices when a fairly nice flatbed was 24000 Back then, it worked out to the math when I did it that approximately in five years, my air ride slider was a free trailer compared to my spread, and I had both in my operation. So was the slider the more expensive unit then? 
No, it was way cheaper to operate. Oh, no, I mean more. I was running the East Coast. No, no. As a matter of fact, most of the time if you found a slider, it's because somebody canceled part of a fleet order and nobody would buy it because everybody wanted the spread. And I'm like, hallelujah. <laughs> and, I'd buy, and I'd buy it. So, yeah, I mean, there's so many things that when you look at a, a spread, aside from the fact the axles are 10 foot 1 inches apart from each other, which is not a natural. I mean, a tandem, if you really look at a tandem, a tandem makes no sense to begin with which is why there's so much benefit from lifting an axle. Doing testing, I found going through the gorge, like if I, if I pick up an axle in Texas going straight across I-10, yeah, you pick up two, three-tenths versus it being free-rolling and that being another benefit of it, not having the differential. But going through the gorge on I-40, just that section, it's close to eight-tenths because you're dragging the tire sidewards all the time, right? So the twistier of the road, the more this makes a difference. And when I did that, figuring I was running the East Coast, so I was turning a lot more than I would have been. And then when I'd look at most spreads, they'd have the mud flaps mounted like four parachutes all the way up against the frame that air couldn't even flow out over the top of them. And then some brands on top of that would box in the whole rear ICC bumper, so if any air happened to get through, it was going to stop it. So the entire wear drag and, and the whole effect. The other thing that was interesting on the one air ride sl slider that I had that was part of an order that got canceled, and I was running low pro 22.5s. And I had bought that trailer, and it came on 11R for 22.5s. And the way it worked out on the truck, it made it that the trailer was perfectly level behind the truck. Yeah, most flatbeds angle down. And when those tires wore out, which incidentally was a little over 425,000 miles, and I put low pro 22.5s on to match the rest of what I had in my fleet, and I was the one pulling that trailer, my mileage dropped because it dropped the back of the trailer. Now with all those cross members and everything, I was pulling a cheese grater through the air, which I ended up straightening back out because I did it through the suspension and got it leveled back out again that the back wasn't lower than the front. All right. We got a couple more Does calls to sense? get through. We're going to head off to Texas. Paul, Howdy. welcome. Howdy. I, I got a few things, but I'll be real quick. So when it comes to waivers, I won't hesitate to sign a waiver. I've signed three on this truck that I'm in right now because uh, it had Michelin tires on it when I got it. That's what I ordered, but they were speed rated at 65 mile an hour. I signed a waiver for that because I didn't want my speed limited at 65, although most of the time I drive at 62. And then... The guy that put the rack on it, because when you're on that number one position, you're above eight feet above the ground. It's meant to have the safety fence on there. I told him I didn't want it. He said, you have to sign a waiver. I said, let's do it. And I did. So I've signed three waivers on this truck. There you go. Before it was a year old. So, yeah, but Nothing wrong with signing a, a waiver as long as you know what you're signing it for and you fully understand what you're uh -huh. getting into, which in these cases you absolutely did. So it's yeah. not a bad, not yep. a bad thing. I'm glad yeah. they'll let you sign a waiver and just tell you you can't do it. Yeah. So I think Bruce mentioned that he's working with Packard to get high rear axle ratio. Well, I think he's got a, a an uphill battle because I just kind of like it. I think he's talking two twenty eight. Pete Packard are just going to assume that. People are going to want to drive 100 mile an hour in that truck, or they're going to lug it along and throw a leg out of bed or something. So he's going to—he probably got more 
more success of pushing water uphill with a rake, I think. So, yeah. And then one more for Joel. If he mm-hmm. parts the thought in his Volvo people's head that they should just extend the hood on the VAH and put the iTalk set up in it, and then let that flat be that. The, Something what you're talking about may be in the works. I, I'm just saying. I, I okay. I'm just saying. Stay tuned. So, <laughs> yeah. And then gotcha. So, um, the because uh, I'll I'll sacrifice eight or ten inches behind the sleeper if I can get the eye talk. I'd sign it in a heartbeat. So, and gotcha. I, I always I always got to laugh a little bit when people say I run heavy. So that flatbed guy and the one of those previous callers said they're running it right at 80,000 pounds. Mm-hmm. In New Zealand, most of the log trucks and the bulk haulers, they're loading between 85 and 90,000 pound payload and running around at 130 on nine axles. So sure. Right. Sure. That's yep. all I got today, so I'll let you get the next man. Thanks. All right. That's all we need. <laughs> Final call of the day comes from Virginia. Robert, you get the last word. Well, this is definitely not a five-minute uh, topic, but uh, uh, I was wondering what Joel and Henry would do specking an ARI legacy sleeper truck. When you when you ask that question, what do you what would you do? What what do you mean? I mean, I, I don't understand the like question. Like how how would they spec it? How would they spec it? So one thing mm, that, that I would arrow-wise, you got a problem. Sorry. Yeah, one thing that I would would say right off the bat, because of the very long wheelbase, um, you can't get the weight transfer that you need to run a six by two. So that would be right out the door. It would end up being a, a six by four for sure. And I would just end up doing on the Volvo side, just doing the the high torque uh, spec in a six by four. Uh, and call it a day that was kind of my point there the only thing you're going to do different is something you might be forced to do different like joel just said we can't do the six by two you're gonna have to do the six by four other than that there's really no difference in the way you expect these trucks okay because as far as i've looked around as the base tech all the Volvos with big sleepers on them, they're doing 308s in them. And 308 500s, yes. Yes, yes. All the time. Hey, hey, Robert. My favorite sick. Robert, don't don't get confused here. That has nothing to do with big sleepers. Most of the trucks on the road today are not optimized in their specs. They never have been. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't know if there was any... Like like you said with the six by four versus six by two, I run really light. You you don't think I could get away with a, a six by two? No, I don't think so. No, no. But they're crazy long on the wheelbase, and it really impacts your fifth wheel position and how weight transfers. There would be no advantage to it. You could potentially order it, which you'll spend a little bit more money to get the lift axle system. Mm-hmm. It would be of no operational advantage to you, and it would really limit you um, in your operation if things changed where you had to potentially haul a little bit more weight. We wouldn't be able to meet that 25% of gross combination vehicle weight target. Uh, it would be a mess. It wouldn't have... Yeah. Yep. 
Okay, so maybe uh, if you had a twenty thousand pound front end on big, big super singles on the front, you might be able to lift it. Then, then, then it probably wouldn't ride so smooth. Um, okay, and then the fourteen speed for the Volvo. So right now there's a little bit of controversy internally on the 13 to 14 speed. Uh, the 13 is what comes standard with iTorque. They wanted to run a little bit more testing on the 14 speed. Their concern was is that the, the new engine makes 1,950 pound-feet of torque, and we've got 32 to 1 reduction, and they want to make sure they've got the torque management right so we're not tearing out drive shafts and screwing up transmission. So the 13 speed is absolutely available and will work just fine. It is identical to the 14 speed once you get out of the crawler gear section. The 14 speed just has deeper reduction. Uh, like I said, the new engines are making more torque and they just want to revisit it and make sure they've got the torque management right. So right now, the 13-speed will be the only thing that's available. And you said you run light, so you're not going to have a problem with it anyway. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Yeah, like most of the time, it's under 10 pounds. Yeah. He said he runs light, but he's pretty heavy to begin with, empty with with those setups. Yeah, he's still going to have plenty of startability with that, though. Yeah, it's a 26,000-pound truck. Yeah, but yeah. you're still going to have plenty be, of startability. You'll be fine with the 13. Yeah. Yeah, All right. We're, more than enough. Yep. We're going to wrap this up. Before I do, I'd like to uh, close out Fridays with some sort of uh, world event or politics. Um, did anybody happen to catch the major shift in what's going on um, in the presidential election from yesterday to today? I did not. Listen, well, listen. yes. I, you're talking about the SCOTUS... Uh, Ruling on my beloved state, Colorado? Um, A little bit. Now, listen to this specifically. Talk about a change. Listen to these headlines that I scrolled this morning. Biden fires back when asked if he can continue as president after a scathing classified docs report. Biden blistered by mainstream media after disaster presser. Biden lays blame for memory mishaps with special counsel. President did not remember when he was vice president. Democrats admit party needs to have conversation about replacing Biden as 24 nominee. You talk about a 180. Prior to this week, the press did everything to protect Biden from all of this stuff. Now today, in in 24 hours, every headline is just about telling us this guy's not going to be the president. I had seen a lot of a lot of those reports, um, and I don't know. Just my thought on this. So we had the 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 incident in Syria where three of our soldiers were killed. Everybody was expecting we were going to have an overpowering response. It dragged and dragged. Finally, we did have a response, which I don't think that response was forceful enough. I don't think we hit anything in Iran directly, which I think we should have, myself personally. And I don't think his response to that helped him at all um, in terms of his electability going forward. I think most people wanted to see uh, a pretty tough response and to take care of business. And I, I don't think that happened. 
No, not at all. Hell, we gave them all kinds of notice about where we were going we, we, to bomb. We, exactly. We warned them. We told them right. up front. It was nonsense. It was right. just a waste of 100 and, 125 guided munitions is all it was. Exactly. To me. I, I mean, when, you're, when you tell them up front, here's what we're going to hit, this is where we're going to hit it, <laughs> I, I, that's ridiculous. Yeah. Completely ridiculous. And yep. I think most people probably see it the same way. Yeah, it looks to me like the press and the the Democratic Party have done a 180, and he's on his way out. It'll be interesting to see how it how it plays out moving forward, for sure. Definitely, I'm not not perfectly well, like with either of our choices. But, I know. You know, it is what it is. <laughs> well, Kevin, hey, Kevin, be careful what you wish for, because, or at least the Democrats, <laughs> to be careful what they wish for, because. The other half of the ticket. Uh, uh, oh, I'm sorry, Henry. Did you have something? Yeah. <laughs> hey, yeah, Alec. Be- it, let me let me finish that for you. I'll tell you who I am afraid of. Uh, it, Newsom is the one that worries me more than anybody. I hadn't thought of that, but uh, you know, I'm just going to say anybody from that state. Well, exactly. All I'm saying, I'll just leave it at that. (laughs) If Biden isn't in that position, uh, most of the other choices are pretty horrendous. But Newsom is the one that's the most likely to be. He's the most electable of all of them. Well, yeah, you're (laughs) angry. The the closing thought for me on this subject is a meme that I saw that it's important to remember that traditionally when things are going wrong at the circus, they roll out all the clowns. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. We, uh, we're going to wrap this up. Thanks you guys. As always, we'll see you back here next week. We'll see you here on Monday. Have a great weekend. Be safe, be profitable, be fit and healthy. Always do the hard work and master the journey.